Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Joseph Green. It's a pleasure to have you back, buddy. I know it hasn't been that long since we last talked, but it's good to see you again. Good to see you, Robbie. How's it going? You look wide awake. <laughs> yeah, it's a little early in the morning. I wanted to invite you on to talk about the RFK assassination because I'm trying to get interested in the RFK assassination. It's not hard. It's just I'm so focused into the JFK one. This is a good little break, but also I think it's important to highlight it because it doesn't really get talked about a whole lot. And I'm curious as to why. I guess it was just because they said that they found the shooter or something like that. And I realize that's a controversial take. I've seen some people make statements that Sirhan didn't do it. I'm just curious how you got interested in the RFK assassination as well, too. Was it from the other ones? And also, maybe you can give me a little breakdown of your view on it. So, um, I mean, I, the story of this is always kind of the same. Um, I became aware of the Kennedy assassination, um, or I became aware of the fact that the Kennedy assassination was something interesting to be looked at and not something to be dismissed. And when that happened, which was a result basically of me meeting John Judge and of also writing this this script that I've talked about before, um, so that that followed through to the other cases. So once I realized what had happened in the John F. Kennedy case, um, I started to see that there were other researchers that were investigating these other cases into Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and I was amazed to discover that. Um, not only are these all conspiracies, but they're all they all point to uh, the same trajectory in American politics, um, which is very difficult for me to process at the beginning. And you have to remember too, it's different for people who didn't live through those. So I was born in 1972, so I was not there for the 60s, and so it didn't have that same visceral impact. You go back and look, and then go holy Toledo, like, and then that sort of explains the seventies. Once you look at the sixties, you're like, Oh Jesus. Um, so, but RFK specifically, there were a number of uh, researchers that were, uh, there hasn't been that many books written about this particular case in terms of the assassinations, only been four or five. And the first one, or one of the first ones that was a book was written by a guy named Bill Turner. Um, who I was friendly with. Um, I met him at the Coalition of Political Assassinations. Actually, I met him at, at the greatest Coalition on Political Assassinations conference ever, I think, uh, which was in 2008. It was in Los Angeles. And basically everybody that had anything to do with the Bobby Kennedy assassination was there, was at this conference, including Ted Schrock, who made a great film Called the second gun, which we could talk about in a minute. Um, but uh, one of the people that showed up was Bill Turner. And um, in talking uh, to Turner, Turner had been a former FBI agent who had uh, left the Bureau basically because of Hoover's COINTELPRO policies. Um, he didn't he didn't agree with them and he didn't like them and he quit. And he went to go work as a reporter for Ramparts, which was a, a great 60s countercultural magazine. And he also went to go help Jim Garrison in his prosecution of Clay Shaw and the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and then later got on to the Bobby Kennedy assassination and wrote, um, like I say, one of the first major books, if not the first major book, uh, which is this one right here with uh, John Christian, the assassination. Of and this is sort of the granddaddy of, of them. I've got kind of an older copy. Um, and then there were some other researchers that, that came into it, um, one of them being Phil Melanson, who unfortunately I never got to meet, right? Um, Shadowplate, very, very good book, co-written with William Claver. Um, Phil Melanson is deceased, alas. I, I never, he was dead before I even got into this stuff, unfortunately. And Bill Turner, unfortunately, is also uh, passed on. Yeah, that's why I asked you about researchers because trying to look up people, I was looking at it. And whenever you read someone's Wikipedia and says was, I was like, damn. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I really liked Bill Turner. I wrote his uh, obit for um, um, Who, What, Why? Because uh, I really, uh, I don't know. When I first met Bill, he had uh, Parkinson's 
and he moved very, very slowly. Uh, but his mind worked just fine. And um, he was, he was an amazing guy. I don't know. I could talk for an hour about that dude. Um, and then my, uh, my friend Shane O'Sullivan did a book called who killed Bobby, which is very good. He first made a film um, through the BBC called RFK must die. And in that film, he kind of famously made a mistake, which is that he thought that he had seen um, George Joannidis, a CIA agent, identified in the Ambassador Hotel, which turned out to be a mistake. That was not Joannidis. Um, he also identified somebody else, I think. But this is, and it was, it was a good lesson because it's, it's going doing trying to do photo IDs is very difficult, and that's why I don't do it. When people say well, it's like the the three tramps in the Kennedy chase, does this guy look like this guy? I mean, kind of, but that doesn't prove anything. Like I, I you know, who the hell knows? And and the latest book, of course, is by Lisa, uh, A Lie Too Big to Fail, which is also quite good. So there's a number of good books, um, but uh, like I say, the major uh, investigators at the time who wrote books like in the 70s are gone, um, but there's still good good research being done. And I've done my own, my little my introduction to the mlk and rfk assassination which is just which really just talks about all of those different books and all the different investigations that have been that have happened um do you want me to go into kind of the the yeah i want details I wanna, and set it up or I, I got your interest now but i'm just, i'm curious like yes set it up for me but did why is it why does it get such little press is that just because it was it was announced that it was one killer it was this Sirhan Sirhan and then eventually skepticism started to come out later because there was a certain amount of bullets that were fired that were more than either his gun or didn't match his gun something of that sort but I'm just curious because it it doesn't really get talked about a whole lot and also trying to find a lot of like as much as you would have a JFK database I'm like it's not just because JFK was the president I'm sure that plays a part sure but he also had his brother killed with the exact same scenario basically so I mean that's suspicious as all hell and very hard to believe. And I think um, a lot of people reject it on that level. Boogie Lucy like, did. I didn't even you know. know. I saw that. I was like, oh, God, I yeah, still can't yeah. like you, though. Yeah, no. And and that's the other weird thing is that you will have uh, different public figures who are who don't believe in one but do believe in the other and stuff like that. Um, so with with Bobby, they probably – thought of it too as an open and shut case which is the name of another book um which i don't have with me uh by robert joling and phil von prague which we can also talk about that later because that becomes important but um but they called it an open and shut case because that's what the prosecutor called it and the, the um because it was it was seems obvious right they got a guy with a gun who's shooting and he was right in front of bobby kennedy so obviously that's you know that's what happened uh but that's actually not what happened. And the only way to find that out, though, is to get into the details of, of what actually did happen. Um, so politically, why was Bobby Kennedy important? Well, um, as you as you know, um, or as, as most researchers are aware, uh, Bobby Kennedy wanted to reopen the Kennedy assassination. Um, and right after, and it's, it's also very important to see that Bobby Kennedy was not well liked, like in general, but it's particularly by the establishment. Okay. When um, Jack was running for president and when he became president, Bobby was like his hatchet man. He was like the guy, you know, when, when uh, Kennedy had to make a decision that was unpleasant or he needed to lean on somebody to get their support, Bobby was the guy who did it. So Bobby got. And so he was, you know, he was, he was, he was a tough guy uh, and ruthless and very straight to the point. Like we're, you know, this is what's happening. I'm going to get this done. And so that was, that had always been his reputation. And then because of his brother's murder, he's the attorney general, but Lyndon Johnson is the new president. Lyndon Johnson hates Bobby Kennedy, right? Hoover hates Bobby Kennedy. So he has no, no, he instantly, has no power right he's instantly a lame duck as soon as jack is dead so um he would like to i think that in the back of his mind is I mean, he wants to pursue justice right 
And he also gets an opportunity because of the craziness of, of 1968. So uh, in 1968, there was it's the beginning of the sort of dirty tricks campaigns that were played on uh, a lot of Democrats at that time. And the 1968 Democratic National Convention was a huge mess. Like there was literally riots, uh, tear gas, all kinds of stuff, right? And it also was open to a lot of different factions within the Democratic Party who wanted to get rid of, um, uh, who wanted to support a Democratic leader who would get us out of Vietnam. Like that was a big, big deal. And there's a film called Medium Cool, which I recommend anybody watch, which it, it's a movie, but the guy who directed the movie, this guy Haskell Waxler, actually went down to the 1968 Democratic National Convention and filmed there and was caught in the riots. And so he's got like actors running around in all this craziness. So it, but it works as a documentary of what actually happened. It's incredible. Um, in that mess, uh, Bobby Kennedy emerged as a presidential candidate. He had not been at the beginning, but he announced his candidacy late. And in fact, the night that Bobby is killed, he had just won the Democratic California primary. This is uh, June 4th, 19th. Yeah, it was less than like a couple of minutes later. I think I watched the video of it and they, the guy was screaming, um, get him. We don't want another Oswald. And I'm just like, that's just like the weirdest fucking thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of weirdnesses. So uh, Bobby is at the Ambassador Hotel that night. He announces um, that we won California. And he looks like a very plausible presidential candidate. And importantly, um, Bobby can beat Nixon. Right. This is a viable person that can potentially defeat Nixon in the in 1968. Did you think it was weird? Like, I watched videos with Kennedy, JFK, and I never saw people shouting in admiration. I mean, you see photos of it, obviously, but I never heard anybody actually scream, Jack, Jack, Jack. But when you see Bobby, that's in the video right before he's shot. There's people going, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. And it's just, to me, it's like it was different. Like before, it seemed like the Kennedy name hadn't been built yet. And then now after Jack, it seemed like Bobby had like, now everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to, but do you think people rid the Kurt tales just because it was similar to his brother in some aspects? Or do you think he had some individual qualities that people really appreciated? Well, that's, it's a, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, partially for sure that um, Jack's aura, you know, the, the Kennedy name, right. That transferred. Uh, but also Bobby Kennedy changed, right? Uh, prior to 1968, I don't think Bobby Kennedy would be hanging out with Cesar Chavez. When he did that, when he started getting involved in the migrant workers, you know, he told other people that this had been a huge, it's a sea change. He, he thought about politics in a different way. And he becomes much, much more of an open personality. Because like I said, this guy is a hatchet man who is the guy who delivers the bad news, the guy who strong arms people into cooperate and saying, hey, we need the votes for this and that. And, you know, he did all that stuff. And he went after the mob as attorney general. But he suddenly, it's like he inherits the mantle at a certain point in 1968. And he decides that this is the guy I'm going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think there is, there's, there's something to that and i think that the energy was an energy of hope because so many terrible things had already happened so besides the fact that we're in the vietnam war you know a president was assassinated five years earlier um three years earlier malcolm x was assassinated two months earlier martin luther king had been assassinated and there's this incredible footage of bobby kennedy getting out of a plane and he has a group of well-wishers uh, and it's late at night and he has to tell them that Martin Luther King has been shot. And he says, it's really, it's something that sticks with me all the time. He, he tells them that I, they, you know, the crowd of course reacts with horror. And Bobby says, I can relate to your horror. I'm paraphrasing um, because a white man also killed my brother. <laughs> it's, I, it, I just think that's a, an amazing way to phrase it and it it 
it seems to stop the crowd dead in their tracks too that you know uh and it's also making this this link about the nature of white supremacy you know uh i think it's just an incredible statement that that bobby makes and so he is that hope you know is there a way to end the nightmare that began on November 22nd, 1963, maybe. Can we get out of this horrible situation that we're in? Can we get out of Vietnam? This is the guy that can maybe do it. And you got to believe that Bobby was serious because his brother got shot, right? This is not like Bernie Sanders, who raised everybody's hopes, including mine. I mean, I, I used to really like Bernie Sanders. And but damn, if that image of him uh, in with mittens with his arms crossed doesn't stick in my head and put on every single Valentine's Day card, I'm smitten like mittens. Well, there you go. It's like, I mean, he became a meme, right? Um, because when push came to shove, you know, Bernie is not that guy. And I'm sure he has his reasons. Um, but he's not the guy that's going to... In fact, on foreign policy, Bernie Sanders is pretty well lockstep Democrat, which is to say they're in favor of war on everybody you know since since the clintons got in office um so yeah yeah bobby is bobby is sort of the last hope at that point of real change and i think that's why he's got to go right so he wins the california primary he's in this hotel he's got to leave so he's going downstairs he's going through a kitchen area and um when he's going through there, he's talking to a young man, uh, a dishwasher, um, and that's when he shot. Now, there's over 100 witnesses, close to 200 people in this pantry in the Ambassador Hotel. Sirhan Sirhan, this little Palestinian gentleman, um, is approximately three to six feet in front of Bobby. Okay. He comes forward. He's holding a gun. He starts firing the gun. A gentleman named Carl Euchre, who was a maitre d', who was holding Bobby Kennedy's wrist, he was like leading him through this crowd of, of well-wishers. Um. As soon as Sirhan starts firing, Carl reaches out and grabs the guy's, Sirhan's wrist, his right wrist with the gun, while he's shooting. Carl, I think, says that um, Sirhan got two shots off before he grabbed him. And he takes that and he starts banging Sirhan's hand on the table. And all the while, Sirhan is pumping the gun. All right. So he shoots, well, several people are shot, including Paul Schrade, who was shot in the head. Um, and Paul Schrade, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, um, meeting Paul Schrade, he's like, he had like movie star charisma. It was funny. I mean, he's a very impressive person. Um, but anyway, so, he, so Paul Schrade gets shot. Several other people get shot. And then the problem becomes that because Sirhan is three to six feet in front of Bobby Kennedy, the question is, where would Bobby have been shot? You know, his chest, right? His stomach, his head, possibly. But his upper torso in the front is where the bullets have got to be going through. Now, when the coroner, um, Thomas Noguchi, did the autopsy, he found that all of the bullets that hit Bobby are from behind him. They're at an upward trajectory. And the, the shot that kills Bobby Kennedy is at contact range, the back of his head, between one and three inches. This is exactly what Noguchi says, okay? Because of the, and the way he knows that is because there's powder embedded in the wound, all right? 
So very simple. Like I say, there's a hundred plus witnesses to this thing. There's a guy, the maitre d', Carl Euchre, who's holding on to Sirhan. Yeah, and he's the one whose clip-on tie is on the floor. That gets cropped out of the photos. So Bobby fell backwards grabbing a tie. That means Carl Euchre, who's behind him. I know he was never... I guess people suspect him. I've, like In previous conversations, who was someone else, Craig Saccone, who did the Dealey Plaza map and everything, was telling me about... We showed photos and everything, did a very deep... Thorough and into the RFK stuff, but um, yeah. Apparently, his gun was sold, or he sold his gun, or he said he sold his gun before. Okay, you're talking. You're talking about the guy that is standing um, behind Bobby Kennedy, that's the not security guard. Thane, no, Thane Caesar is the guy that. Is that's the security the guy. Guard. Okay, sorry. There's a lot of yeah interesting names. I should yeah. say the least. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, Euchre is. Sorry, my arm went off. Um, Euchre is the guy that's the maitre d'. He's a big German fellow who's who's holding on to uh, Sirhan. Um, now they will get to the guy behind him in just a second. But the the very very the plain facts right are that Sirhan is in front, about three feet. Some people say two feet. I think I think Euchre may have said two to three feet. There are witnesses that say up to like eight feet. It just depends on where they were positioned. But anyway, everybody agrees Sirhan's in front. The wounds are all from the back. They're all at an upward trajectory. And they're very, very close to his head. Now, as you point out, there is a gentleman standing behind Bobby Kennedy. His name is Thane Eugene Caesar. He's a security guard who also worked at Lockheed. Uh, he worked for Hughes Aviation. And he was a John Bircher. And Teddy Schrock, in his film, The Second Gun, interviewed Caesar. And Caesar says, no, I would have never voted for Bobby Kennedy because, you know, they sold, they, I think he says something like they, uh, his brother sold the U.S. down the river to the communists. So this is the kind of thinking, I mean, they, you know, the guy's a Neanderthal. Um, he admits that he did pull his gun. And he did fall down. What he says is that when he pulled the gun out, uh, that he never got a chance to fire because it was all over by the time he had his gun out. Um, however, because of the logistics of where everybody's standing, Thane Caesar is the most obvious suspect in the world of being the true murderer of Bobby Kennedy. He's in the right position and he's firing a gun. Or he has a gun, which another witness did say that he did fire, that he returned fire. Uh, but Thane sees, Caesar says that uh, that never happened. And yes, later on, um, I think Teddy was trying to get hold of uh, Thane's weapon, and he then sold it in this very mysterious transaction, and then the gun disappeared and all that. Yeah. So anyway, nobody ever got to look at the gun. Uh, and it's, it's kind of amazing that he even... Uh, because the, the police at scene never even bothered to question the guy. Like you've got, you have to, if you're doing due diligence, in other words, if this is a real investigation, then you have to interview things easier. You have to take his gun. You have to compare it to the wounds. You, you normal ballistics, you do all those things. Or just make sure the they bullets match the gun that's being fired too. Exactly. Why exactly. does Sirhan Sirhan have a gun though? Well, that's that's a good question, um, and it becomes a, a real problem later on in the case because um, the he spent a lot of time with several people that he was sided with, and one of them was the girl in the polka dot dress, which is how she came to be named, because there was a woman who was with Sirhan, possibly got him the gun. Nobody really knows. But um, the girl with the polka dot dress, when the shooting happened, she ran out into the lobby and was jumping up and down excitedly saying, we got him, we got him. And then she disappears from history. And what happens later 
in the trial of Sirhan is the prosecution produces a woman that they say is the polka dot dress woman. Um, but they have almost nothing in common with each other. So they were both wearing dresses with polka dots, but the polka dots don't match. The women don't match. The The lady who runs out in the lobby is a brunette. The uh, witness that the prosecution produces is a blonde. Her name is uh, Valerie Schulte. But most importantly, uh, Valerie Schulte has a broken leg, which she did not have. Uh, the, no one no one said a polka dot dress lady ran out in the hall with a broken leg, like in a cast, um, jumping around excitedly. So it cannot be this person. So we don't know what happened. And it's very possible that this is the woman who, with this other guy that Sirhan had been seen with uh, recently, are the people who got him the gun. The gun becomes a problem because uh, Sirhan is using a uh, revolver that's an Ivor Johnson revolver. Okay. That gun is taken into evidence. Again, during the trial of Sirhan, um, the prosecution produces a different Ivor Johnson. And the reason that we know it's different is because it has a completely different serial number. And the bullets match the Ivor Johnson <laughs> that is produced by the prosecution, but not the gun that Sirhan actually used. And it was a, a prosecution witness named Wolfer, who was the supposedly the ballistics expert, who does this, who, who perpetrates essentially a fraud. But the even crazier than that is that nothing happened. Like the judge just kept going with the case. So you have one gun that is clearly identified with, you know, H, blah, 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 whatever the serial number is. The prosecution introduces a different gun and says that's the one that Sirhan uses. Well, the prosecution just lost the case, right? That screws up the evidence. You, you don't have the gun anymore. Now there's this question of what happened. But again, it just plows right through. Wait, so no and, one stopped that the, they changed the gun out, that that was just perjury in a trial? It, ne it was never even addressed. This... And this is how you know. So first of all, straight from the top, the LAPD. Did Boogie you know, Osi catch it? Was he, he like, hey, they're doing what I did back with Manson? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, no, it's it's the LAPD, which is, you know, one of the most corrupt in the world. Uh, and the LAPD's investigation of this thing was horrible. I don't know. Did Did you get the images that I sent you? I saw some of them. The couple of the ones I saw in the kitchen with the people lined up and it showed like a bullet going into the tile and then going down like that. I've seen those before, which I think is weird that both cases have a magic bullet. Um, the, the the most I just didn't know. I don't know anything really about the court, uh, the trial proceedings. Obviously, uh, Sir Hunter had another parole that happened as well, too. I mean, we can get into that. Um a lot of the LAPD. I'm very interested in learning more about the LAPD's involvement. And in I know like not asking witnesses but also destruction of documents as well too much like with the kennedy assassination with hume's notes um that's yeah, a little yeah. bit they did, strange they did the same thing yeah yeah no because and so one of the things that that also came out is that um sirhan has an eight shot revolver but there are more people wounded and more bullets in the pantry than are in his gun there are different estimates i've seen up to 13 but there's a photo. One of the one of the things I sent you was an article from uh, one of the small LA presses at the time, and it shows a photo of the ceiling because the LAPD just got rid of a couple of the tiles in the ceiling that showed additional bullet holes because there's bullets all over the place in this place, and so the LAPD actively destroys the evidence. Of these extra bullets. Why? Why do you think why the purpose? Do that? Why do you think the purpose of that is? Well, it's to hide the fact that there are other shooters. Okay. In other words, there may be, um, and and this is a this was suggested too by a gentleman that I that I mentioned earlier. So uh, 
Robert Joling and Phil von Prague wrote a book um, called An Open and Shut Case. And von Prague is not a researcher. He is, and uh, Joling has passed on, but I think von Prague is still alive. He is an audio expert. And he got a hold of the tape of the shooting, of the audio tape. And so he's analyzing the audio. And I think he comes up with something like 13 shots. But he also says that some of those shots are so close together that they would be best be explained by two people shooting at the same time. So in other words, some kind of crossfire, triangulation of fire, something like this is happening. Um, so who that additional gunman would be, who knows? We, we just don't know. Fane is the most plausible um, person to be the, the guy who actually kills Bobby Kennedy. He's in the right position. He has the gun and he's, you know, he can shoot him in the head and upward also important because uh, Thane says he fell to the floor. So as he's coming to the floor, it's like he's shooting. In fact, one of the bullets uh, went through Kennedy's coat without actually hitting him and just went up to the ceiling. Um, so there, so that's just the ballistic part of that's just the, the, the logistics of the actual shooting itself which I would I would maintain prove that Sirhan did not shoot Bobby. Prove. Because it is not possible. And the scenario is to, to the authors who accept the ballistics evidence and the coroner's report um, try to come up with ways for what if Bobby had like, you know, twisted around and you know, his head had fallen into the gun, you know, absurd stuff. And Carl Euchre, who is right there, he's got a hold of uh, of the shooter, of the alleged shooter, Sirhan, and he says, no, that never happened. He said, Bobby Kennedy never got that close. They, they, he never got one inch from Sirhan's weapon. That just didn't happen. Okay. So the closest witness disputes that account. Uh, and the coroner proves it. And then you look at what happened to the coroner. Well, guess what? Thomas Noguchi is the uh, L.A. County coroner, had been doing so for, for years. And immediately, the LAPD fires him. And there's a huge, there's a big to-do. Lawsuits are filed. Um, and Noguchi eventually gets his job back. But this is the response to Noguchi producing an accurate autopsy for not going along with where the LAPD is going. And how do we know that? Because the LAPD, guys like Manny Pena, are destroying evidence as they come in and covering up what happened. So we've never had a good investigation into the Bobby Kennedy assassination because the LAPD is all over it. Another interesting thing about um, that whole situation is to find the continuity of certain individuals, right? Um, you're familiar with uh, Police Chief Daryl Gates, the LAPD. You ever heard that name? Okay. Um, yeah, you would have missed this. So Daryl Gates became famous. Um, he was the um, he was the police chief. In, in Los Angeles from like 1978 to like 1992. Um, but before that, he had worked in the LAPD as uh, an investigator. And uh, Gates had been an investigator into the Manson tragedy, which already is like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and then Gates is a key figure in the investigation of Bobby Kennedy. Of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, right? Gates is also the guy who approved the very first SWAT team in something like 1968. So he's behind that. Um, and he has this, uh, he was also the guy who created D.A.R.E. You're probably familiar with D.A.R.E., this yeah, stupid worked out drug thing. That did fantastic, didn't it? Let's just bring a bunch of drugs into school, tell them all the awesome stuff about it, and then never, you know. That was Daryl Gates' thing. So, uh, and Daryl Gates, the reason he got fired was because he was the police chief when Ron 
the king got beat up by the cops. And he said all these crazy racist things. So that's Gates. So Gates is a tool <laughs> of the empire, I would argue, in, in this position. Um, and like I say, anything involved in the LAPD, you got to just be, uh, you're going to have to look into it because, you know, they do what they're told. Um, and a lot of them are crazy racist. John Birchers, probably to this day. Yeah, when you were describing the one guy who's a John Bircher and all this, I was like, yeah, it fits a deep state profile, don't it? <laughs> a little bit. I'm just wondering if you think the LAPD is like deep connected into like a government cover-up type deal, like with the JFK stuff, or do you think it's more of an aspect of just shitty police work, wrap it up as tight as you can? Because some of the Dallas police stuff can come off kind of like it's super connected, but I think a lot of it's just like they were just shit cops too. Like um, everyone seemed lazy as shit and nobody gave a shit about, I probably didn't care about Bobby and probably didn't care about JFK. And that was just the law enforcement back then. But I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of police work now and I go, I just think these are just shitty cops. They're so bad at what they do. And they're purposely doing it too, because they don't want to do the extra work to try and find out the truth, which is interesting that the autopsy was actually pretty thorough um compared to what was going on i think that's probably where most of the conspiracy stuff comes from was the guy was like you can't get it like this there's no other way like they're straight from right behind them not in front of them yeah yeah absolutely well and if you want to look at the history of lapd yeah james elroy writes about it in his his novels he's he's done a lot of work in that that area and he also wrote a i think he has a nonfiction book about the same thing but i may be wrong about that i know my buddy just made um, a new book about him i gotta learn more about james elroy because he wrote a book called uh god oh it's so good i can't i don't even think i can remember it oh howard howard i think howard hughes um hold on let me google it no 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 it's about james elroy we're gonna okay here it is it calls the view from howard's fuck pad the deep state bad white man and the weird noir of james elroy Eric Wilson is his name. So shout out to him. And I, as soon as he said the title, I was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> I was like, That's a great title name. Thank God someone's finally having the balls to put fuck pad on the front of a cover of a book. I've been waiting since I was 10. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, the, but that does sound like an interesting, that, that, that sounds You'd good. like Eric. I would get um, you guys in a podcast. Go. He's, he's a philosopher like you are. Um, He's been on, I think three or four times now. Um, we always, but it's always like how my show is, you know, it's just conversation. So it kind of rattle all over the place. Like he started, it's, I don't know. You just have to listen back to his episodes. You get the gist of who he is, but you guys have similar viewpoints on things. Um, but he does bring up good points about kind of like the cowboy, um, mentality that's in the politics where it's like, you take one of our guys out. We take one of your guys out like the, this back and forth that kind of starts to happen. And you start kind of seeing it. And we talk a lot about Watergate. Cause I have different views probably than most people about Nixon, only because when you think of like Richard Nixon, everyone thinks Watergate. And it's like he wasn't the only bad person in that time period. And the fact that history books are only remembering like cultural, I guess, I guess the public's perception of like the 70s. If you're not thinking about counterculture, maybe if you actually dive into it. But from what I've seen through talking with people like Abe Peck, who was a part of the Chicago Seed and other underground press magazines that were out there and learning more about like the weather underground Nixon's name comes up like it's nobody's business and you just can't escape it. And I go, well, I'm sure he did bad. I'm not saying he was good. But to say that that's the only motherfucker in our politics that's doing bad, I was like, I, I just don't believe it. So it's just like, I don't know. For, I Like I said, I have a different take than most people do on Nixon. Um, but I think it's just because there's just so much going on. And the fact that you only hear like one that kind of resembles out of the whole thing, like even the Kennedy assassination. What about the other assassinations? Well, too, I never even knew about Fred Hampton. And then I learned about Fred Hampton, had Jeffrey Hawes on here. And I'm like, holy shit, like there's a lot more going on back then. But that's also another example, shitty police work. And if it was purposely intended no. to make sure. Well, I mean, that was like more. No, that was a, they, they, that was an assassination. Yeah. No, because I mean, the, the key thing is, is that the that the treasurer of the Black Panther Party, uh, Fred Hampton's good friend, is the guy who put second all in his coffee and told the cops where Fred was going to be in the building. So that's it. And they came, they came to um, to um, serve a warrant at like three in the morning. Are you, wait, are you talking about O'Neill? Uh, that is, yeah, uh, that is, uh, uh, what was his 
first name. I was to say, I don't know if the, the, the Sentinel thing in the coffee was proven, but I think the main thing is that he just didn't wake up. But I think there's more evidence to kind of support if you're kind of just lining up the lines together that there was something poor in his yeah. drink. You can't have a hundred something shots go off and not wake up. Yeah, yeah, no, no. He and he was assassinated. The the he shot right in the head from yeah, two, two shots and the pregnant mother, um, or his girlfriend at the time stated that they were up close. A cop went back there and you heard two pops. And then the hits a photo of him sprawled across his door um in his underwear, which is rough. But um yeah, that's a that's and that's what I that's what I argued in an essay um I don't know fifteen years ago now. Wow, that's it's been a while. Uh, called the open assassination of Fred Hampton because what I've essentially argued is that the cops did not bother to create a conspiracy because he was not a large enough public figure and because he was 21 years old and black. And the Chicago police figured that they would be able to do this thing without, there's no elaborate plot in other words, in Fred Hampton. Um, we, I mean, we know there were informants because the FBI had informants all through the Panthers. Um, and like I say, one of them was instrumental in murdering Hampton. But this goes back to the elimination of the Black Messiah. That was part of COINTELPRO. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, Fred, uh, the, the Fred Hampton case, Fred Hampton is one of my sort of big heroes. Um, I am. Um, We'll get astonished. into that at some point, but we got to stay on our. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, sorry. RFK. Yeah. Okay, so hold on. After, well, why is Sirhan being denied parole still? Like, what's keeping him? Is it nobody just wants to release him? Like, what, how is he in jail been for like what? I was like, what, 40 years, 50 years or something yeah, like that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's horrible. And um, I mean, there is no good reason. And in fact, a number of uh, doctors who have met with Sirhan and, um, uh, spent time with him, have written to the parole board and said, you know, this guy doesn't pose a danger to society. But obviously he does because he's this remaining link to a state-sponsored assassination. And that's why he keeps getting denied parole. Um, and you also have to remember, too, that that Sirhan was, appears to have been um, an MK Ultra victim. Um, but he was doing all kinds, he was extremely hypnotizable and he did all sorts of automatic writing and he, um, I don't know if you've ever heard, there's a, there's a tape of one of the um, psychiatrists that is hypnotizing Sirhan and then walking him through the assassination, but he's not asking him questions. He's saying, okay, Sirhan, what are you going to do? Pull your gun out. Pull your gun out, Sirhan. Now's the time. Pull your gun. Pull your gun. And so he, so Sirhan's pulling like an imaginary gun and pulling the trigger. He said, "That's right. You got to shoot him. You got to shoot him. Now's the time to shoot." I'm like, like that is not an investigation. You're essentially browbeating the guy into saying that he performed this murder. Um. So of course, Sirhan's all completely mixed up because of this, and. During that trial, the assessment of Sirhan's sanity, one of the guys that, that analyzed him and said that Sirhan was insane was Jolly West. Big surprise, right? Jolly West turns up all the time. You know, Jolly's like, you know, hey guys, what do you need? And he's there. Well, whenever their name comes up in that MK Ultra stuff, it's there's a specific group of people that were involved in MK Ultra. So if their name just pops up anywhere, you have to assume that there has to be some type of involvement with MK Ultra. You don't pull those people out for a random trial or random psychiatric appointment. It's something specific that happens to be MK Ultra related. But do we know where? I mean, was it the polka dot dress? That's a trigger. I don't know. I mean, when you start explaining he's still firing a gun while he's being his hands being slammed on a table, that's a sign of mania. So someone is not obviously either in clear mind, whether it's an altered state from drugs or if it's just an altered state from their 
you know, psychological perspective, but that's mania right there. I mean, most people react and when their hands being slammed something, they don't keep firing the trigger. They turn it to the person and then try and get a good shot at that person to get them off of them. Something of that sort. So that means you have someone that is obviously on something, which I'm surprised. Did anybody bring that up in a, as a defense? I mean, you still well, probably would no, go to because... jail. If you, even if you're insane, I don't think people are going to be able to detach. Like, doesn't matter if you're insane, you're still going to jail. Because insanity defense, right? You go to the hospital instead of the prison. You yeah, go to jail diversion. But people are still going to be like, you're still the killer of the president because you, even if you're insane, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's just his face is attached to it now. But the fact that the bullets came from behind and that was never explained, and they're saying that it was from the person who's photographed and seen by many witnesses in front, is. I don't know. It just seems like is it because there's a lack of interest? Nobody's really tried to pry that sucker open and get it. Why isn't the why wasn't there an HSCA on it? You know what I mean? Like a whole other second reinvestigation into it. The, the HSCA did look into the the they looked into all the assassinations. Um, well, they looked into the into Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy as well. Um, the John F. Kennedy gets all the press, but they did look into those other assassinations, and there was some. Things pulled out, but not nothing. Um, I don't think there was anything that uh, you know that blew anybody's head off. But I want to go back to the uh, the thing you said because um, you made a good point that I forgot to talk about, which is the defense. So Sirhan's lawyer at the time was a guy named Grant Cooper, and he was like one of the most famous attorneys of the time, and he had. It's kind of a long, convoluted story that I'm not going to go into, but there was something called the uh, Beverly Hills Friars Club um, scandal. And the, at the Friars Club, there was it was a like a gambling parlor, like a you know for rich people to hang out, and they had like drilled holes in the ceiling or something. They they were cheating at cards, and a number of sort of big shots Hollywood big shots had lost money in this thing. So there was this big scandal and there was this big case and Grant Cooper was handling that case. And at one point, um, Cooper, it looks like maybe he was, it's been suggested and, and I don't know that this is true, but it's been suggested that uh, Cooper was basically set up because at a certain point he has documents in his possession that should have gone back to the court. And if this, he was going to be uh, um, reviewed by the California law system and potentially disbarred because of this thing that he did. And then he, he gets the Surahan case. And the first thing he does in the Surahan case is he says, we're not going to dispute guilt. We are going to stipulate to liability. That means, so Surahan never got a real defense. Cooper said, "We're gonna. What we what I'm gonna try to do is spare him the death penalty by pleading guilty." So, and the fact of the matter is, is that one of the guys, like for example, Dr. Bernard Diamond, who is the doctor that can be heard, uh, you know, telling Sirhan that he needs to shoot the president, is is a defense witness. Like how this guy is a defense witness, um, but yeah, so that's what happened. That's Sir, a Sirhan got screwed. That's a devil's bargain right there. I mean, would you rather spend your life 50 years gone, flushed down the toilet, being in a penitentiary, and or would you rather just take death? I mean, at that point, sucks to say it, but I feel like if you're going to get truth out of the matter, it's better that he's still alive because you got to think about the damages that he's going to have to be, you know, it, hopefully. I mean, I get it why people are definitely um, still fighting for him. I, it's just hard. It's just, it's so It's been so long now. Like, I feel like a lot of people that would have been there, like after Bobby died, did you have a lot of people that had interest in the assassination or trying to look deeper into it? I mean, yeah, see, that's the thing is like I, the JFK one, there's a lot of people that obviously had a lot of interest in it. And I would think you would have even more just because it's like, holy shit, his brother died in like the same way. Another single lone gunman suspected, you know, killer type deal. You have to remember that people are so, like I said, Bobby Kennedy is the last great hope, right? At least a lot of people think of it in that way. So when he's shot, he's, de he's dead. That hope is gone. Uh, Vietnam will continue. Our national nightmare will continue. Nixon's going to be president. And you've just gotten another demonstration of what happens to people who try to buck the state. So just in the same way that doing a public execution of Jack Kennedy 
subconsciously tells people, don't mess with this. Uh, you're telling them again with the Bobby Kennedy assassination and all that hope goes away. And there's a lot less interest at that point in pursuing any of these matters, right? Um, that's not the true with everybody. Uh, Allard Lowenstein, who's a good friend of, of Bobby Kennedy, pursued it. Paul Schrade pursued it. Um, there were people who did, but in general, uh, um, there was a lot less interest in Bobby than in Jack. I mean, if you count the number of books that were written on the Kennedy, the Jack Kennedy conspiracy, I mean, it's, I don't know, thousands at this point, a lot. Uh, and with Bobby, not so much. Um, the good ones, there's less than 10. Um, yeah, maybe six or seven. So, yeah, there there was not a lot of interest, and there was not. I mean, comparatively, and it was a kind of signal that you know we're done. Like this, like we've lost essentially. Was there anything for the RFK Was there anything for the RFK assassination for you that you just thought was something you never looked into, or something that just seemed like a like. There's a red herring in every case, I should say. The Tippett uh, scenario is a is a red herring. You know, it seems like it might be the piece that solves the puzzle, but to me, that one this like that brings up more confusion. It's like trying to figure out if Oswald was in fucking Mexico or not. I don't know. I don't want to bother with it. I don't think you need to get people to conspiracy by saying you know the whole Mexico deal. But I'm curious if there's anything in the RFK that was more a red herring or something you would consider a lost cause. You know, I disagree about Mexico because I think Mexico is. Was he there or not? Is um, I don't think so. But I mean, but the that's the thing. The Why do you care that? that? What What are we talking about? If you don't know, I don't because, know either. Because the government is saying that he was, right? Which so and which also becomes evidence against interest, which is my favorite. Always evidence against interest, right? Is when um, the FBI report that um. Oswald does not match this person's appearance or voice even. And so that is revealing the, the conspiracy, the construct of the conspiracy. They're lying about the fact that he was in Mexico. Why are they doing that? Well, they've got these other reasons for doing so, but um, but it is clearly a lie. And even the FBI knows it, right? So that that's why I think, so it's not always like every detail about you know certain things, but um, Mexico is important because it reveals the conspiracy. So I think that's that's you know about Kennedy, about to, about JFK. In the case of RFK, there is like you can go way down a rabbit hole with the people that Sirhan was hanging out with, and this one guy called the Walking Bible. And I don't even want to get into it all. But if you read um, Bill Turner and John Christian's book on the Kennedy assassination, on the RFK assassination, um, you can get deep into the weeds with some of those folks. Um, which I don't know what to make of a lot of that stuff. It's really weird. Um, I think Lisa has it. I think I think it's Lisa that addresses it also in her book, or maybe it's Melanson. Anyway, I haven't looked at this in a while. But um, yeah, there's there's some, but there's not the same quantity. There's not, you know, Anacastro Cubans everywhere and like weird, you know, mob ties and things like there's there's fewer of those things in the Bobby Kennedy assassination. And again, presumably because you've got a guy who clearly did it, right? He's standing right there. He's got a gun. Everybody sees him. Um, oh, and there was one more thing I, I forgot to mention too, very important. Um, the story of Scott Inyard. Scott Inyard being a, at the time, he was like 15 years old. He's a photographer. And he had just started taking photographs a couple of years before. And Scott Inyard is alive today. Um, and uh, posts great stuff on Facebook. He's he became a professional photographer, has all these great photographs. Um, but at the time, like I say, he was a kid and, and he was taking photographs of Bobby Kennedy walking through the pantry. And after he took all these photographs and he photographed the shooting and all the confusion, he kept you know clicking the thing and used up his roll film. As he was leaving, he was stopped by two police officers who at gunpoint took the film away from him. And there was this long odyssey to try and get those photographs back. I think it took a year or two. He kept petitioning and doing all this. And when he did get the photos back, 
um, there was 10 of them missing, all from the middle. So he has pictures of Bobby coming out and pictures of the confusion, but no, none of the pictures that he took while the shooting was actually taking place has ever turned up. And there's a lot of other crazy things that the negatives allegedly got stolen out of a car on the way to deliver them to yeah, yeah. like crazy nonsense that clearly points to a conspiracy. Um, and again, it's just some kids' photographs. Why, why would you need to? steal the photographs like why why would those be important to get rid of well because they show something else they show a different shooter maybe they show a faint seizure who knows but they don't show what the state says because if they showed what the state says there wouldn't have been any problem with the photographs is there a way to subpoena those or probably destroyed yeah you and you you might uh i know uh scott in gave an interview to black op radio like 10 or 12 years ago because i was on with them at the same in time so i mean you could ask him he, he has it's a long story i don't know all the details but it's it similar did, it like to like forever. the gail nick stuff yeah where there's just endless uh lawsuits and petitioning and asking and begging and trying to get these things and you know the government saying no for a year or two or maybe longer so who do you think uh killed bobby kennedy yeah so i mean again it comes down to um this is a state-sponsored murder so um i don't think that finding uh if there's an if there was a co-conspirator with faint caesar um i don't think it would necessarily be that important to find out who that is because that guy is an instrument just the way faint caesar is right if faint caesar is shooting bobby kennedy it's not because you know he came up with this on his own that i'm going to trick everybody into believing that sirhan did this thing or you know it's a crime of opportunity. He sees that Sirhan is shooting, so therefore he's going to shoot Kennedy. Like none of those stories make any sense. Like he's not going to do that. But we know that he wasn't investigated at all, basically. Uh, and the LAPD never took him seriously as a suspect. So that means he's protected by the state. So yeah, we're talking about another government assassination. Whether that is, you know, you want to draw a line from the Pentagon again, from the CIA. Uh, I think that those networks all make sense. Um, and they're obviously connected to Operation Artichoke, which is the first version of, or not the first version, but the middle version of MKUltra. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that you need to, I wouldn't say Richard Nixon killed him. In other words, um, this is a state-sponsored crime. Usually in like the JFK stuff, you got like mob, you got, Dallas police, you got a whole bunch of other ones. I'm just curious because Bobby Kennedy did have a vendetta for the mob when he was under with JFK. So, I mean, I'm sure there's probably a bunch of things, but the, the amount that is messed up about the whole case, the fact that, you know, 10 photos could be missing that would show probably the most important parts of like the actual shooting. And then you're having these weird trajectories. And now you have a person that's been on parole for however long or has been, you know, uh, not on parole, uh, incarcerated for 50 incarcerated. years yeah, yeah not in parole yeah so y y you have a lot of a and this one's more i mean you could actually get answers and be able to help a person's life out in this scenario i mean the jfk stuff's more about correcting history but i'm just curious you say state sponsor do you think any independent agencies or do you think this could be such a more just unique military industrial complex idea I think it's kind of like like in a lot of these cases i think it's like who who made the decision to invade vietnam Right. There's there's no one person who says that we're going to do this thing. Um, but at a certain point, everybody agrees that this is a good idea. It's like, um, or when we invaded Iraq, right? I don't think George Bush was the guy saying, hey, let's do this. I mean, I'm sure he was in favor, but it doesn't happen because George Bush says this, right? There's There's institutions, there are organizations that operate with each other um and that make these decisions and i think it's the same thing that when you're when you're looking at a state-sponsored crime it's a mistake to look for the one guy who did it because it's usually not gonna by the very nature of the situation it's not going to be the one guy um now you could point the head of the government responsible in the same way in a liability sense because he's supposed to be my store and that's fine if, if you're trying to look at who actually plans these things the technical difficulties but we were talking about 
you were mentioning why you don't think that there's just one single piece of this person did it. It's more of a group state effort. Uh, yeah. Um, what I was saying is that um, when you are looking at uh, something that is perpetrated by a particular government, a state, um, you don't usually, you're not usually able to identify one single person who is the prime mover of a particular action. So we may, uh, you know, invade Vietnam, uh, but not because of one guy, right? There'll be different uh, factions within the government. Uh, obviously, the Joint Chiefs are always like a very strong element in this. Um, or the decision to make a treaty with some country or, you know, to do all the various actions that we do around the world. And some of them are, I mean, we know, for example, uh, that Woodrow Wilson uh, invaded Haiti uh, largely because of Robert Lansing and the different um, sugar interests in America that wanted Haiti to stop competing so well against them. And so we sent the Marines to Haiti. Right. So uh, there are different interests and different factions that are involved in any of these kinds of decisions. So you're, you're almost never going to be able to say, you know, that's the guy. Uh, what you can identify are people that are sympathetic and are cooperating and are active participants. Um, but a lot of times these are going to be professionals. So the guy who designs, let's say, the Bobby Kennedy assassination is somebody who's an expert. And it's a group of people, more, more than likely, who's an expert at doing this exact sort of thing. So they might be with the CIA, they might be with the defense intelligence, um, but they're all going to be pros. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's just crazy how, how it gets away for so long. You don't think it's that deep when you start. I mean, did you think that the RFK thing, like when you looked into it, I mean, obviously you saw some things that were a little bit suspicious, but did you have the same feelings from when you began to where you're at now? Or do you kind of look at this like, did it open up your mind more to the deep military industrial complex i'm sure the jfk one did that too but um me looking to like the counterculture stuff i'm getting very interested in like it's not just specific people in high positions of power it's kind of like anything that they seen as a threat now i don't agree with the weather underground blowing up all that type of stuff it got violent when they were starting to put nails and shit um but i look at it like this is also what happens when you repress a lot of people and also the government and the political kind of ideology or mindset that we see with these deep state tactics is trying to predict bad things before they get worse or things that are a problem when i say bad it doesn't mean that they're evil it just means things that mess with the original flow or the original plan and that's what i i nobody's in a position of power to be able to predict the fucking future it's like whenever i hear these People come out with like climate models and like, oh, don't worry, we'll find a new re renewable energy in like 20 years. There'll be someone in the future that'll think of like a renewable. I'm like, you, what the fuck is that? Like, I'm not banking on, I'm not betting the farm on that. That's the dumbest thing in the world. But that's what you see with like, you know, if a Black Panther Party leader or something was going to have a, a, a meeting at a, an apartment building, they go over there and they go, hey, before these people even show up, just say they're being rowdy and try and get them to make sure that they have to cancel or cops come and have to shut it down before the event even starts. It's like you're predicting that it's going to be this way because you don't want it to happen at all. And like to me, I don't know. You can't just try and see the future. You're not fucking uh, what's his name? Doc from Back to the Future. You can't do that. I think you made a very good point um, that. The type of capitalism that we have operates at both a micro level, at a low level, and a macro level. So uh, that is to say that when they're trying to predict what the Black Panthers are going to do, this is a very small group. Bobby Seale told me that there was only a few hundred people in the Black Panthers, even at the highest point. Um, but the state took that very seriously, and they wiped them out, essentially, put them in jail or killed them directly. Um, and there was many murders, like little Bobby Hutton. There's a, there a whole bunch of people that got flat out murdered. Um, but at the same time, those the same people are trying to predict what's going to happen on a world level. And we need to do this because, you know, they're playing the grand chessboard, as Zbigniew Brzezinski called it. Um, and that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So you're talking about spheres of influence. You're talking about an empire. Uh, and you're talking about people who have sufficient power to do whatever they want, or at least they think so. And thus far, they've gotten away with most of it. Now we're going to wrap just because the tech, the technology for you today is not working out. So well, I could tell you that much. Get, get a better Wi-Fi. Come on, everyone donate. So Joe gets better Wi-Fi. We can't the stuff, man. I mean, I've got as good as we can get here in San Antonio. I don't know why it's doing this. It's crazy. 
I think it's the worst problem we've had connection-wise. Usually we have some difficulties, but it's always manageable. But now your computer's not working and we're going off the phone and the phone seems like it's going half the speed. But I appreciate the time anyway. We got most of it out of the way before the technology started crapping on us. Um, <laughs> where can people find you, Joe? Yeah, uh, Joe Green, JFK. Um, also the Hit History Center and Say Something Real Press and the Center for Deep Political Research, which is what I completely screwed up on in the last interview I did, I was like, I completely brain farted on the last one. So sorry. But yes, Center for Deep Political Research and Joe Green JFK is the easiest way. And just because I know Rich is going to be listening, we're going to edit out the Center for Deep Political Research. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast and stay tuned for our next episode.